I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Everyone knows therapy is great for solving problems, but getting therapy has its own problems too, like finding the right therapist, fitting into their schedule, and of course, the cost. Well, BetterHelp can solve those problems. It's totally online and built around your schedule. It's surprisingly affordable too. Connect with a credentialed therapist by phone, video, or online chat, all from the comfort of your home. Visit BetterHelp.com to learn more and save 10% on your first month. That's BetterHelp, H-E-L-P. It's beginning to look a lot like, well, last Christmas all over again, actually, with a new wave of infections and restrictions across the UK, Europe and the rest of the world. On this edition, we talk to the author of a new book, Cycling Through a Pandemic, and one of its featured riders, crit and gravel racer Sammy Sowry, about discovering adventure much nearer to home. And we hear from former Sky and Alpecin pro Ian Boswell, rediscovering fun and freedom on the gravel. This is Ruler Conversations, brought to you by Lacquer, bicycle insurance powered by the community. Ian Boswell's career as a road pro was cut short by a crash at Terreno Adriatico, which left him with severe concussion. He found a job working with athletes for Wahoo Fitness and almost by accident found himself riding gravel races. And not just riding, but winning the 200-mile unbound gravel event in Kansas. Ian told the story to Rachel Jarry at Ruler Live, starting with his enforced early retirement in 2019. There's no question that I guess the like the crash that I had in the spring of that year was kind of the driving force behind why I decided to quit. Um, you know, I guess having that essentially a season that ended in March, um, I think was when Terreno was, just realizing that I loved riding my bike enough and maybe that meant that racing was, you know, maybe to ride the, my bike for the rest of my life. Maybe it meant not racing on the road anymore because there's a lot, I mean, you give up a lot to be, especially an American athlete living in, in Nice, you know, you're living, I was spending 10 months a year in Europe and, and, you know, making a lot of sacrifices, you know, both, you know, physically and with family and, you know, just not doing things that I had, you know, wanted to do and, you know, gave up essentially my twenties, um, you know, pursuing this career and I had achieved a lot and, and I enjoyed it, but I guess having that time away from, you know, the sport allowed me to realize, okay, like I'm ready to, to kind of walk into to something new, which is funny because I'm obviously still here riding my bike and doing some bike races but I guess it's in a very different capacity than than what it was. I mean you were still quite relatively young when you retired and the age that you were you were potentially entering what could have been physically the best years of your career was there any challenges that came with it mentally like any difficulties? Yeah I mean especially in the first you know kind of months after the the crash when I started to realize maybe I don't race again and and there's so much tied to kind of your identity and and who you are and you know how will people perceive you if you're you know, no longer racing. And then also, you know, I'm 28 years old. Like I need to find a job. Like you're retiring, but you're like, it's not really retiring. Like I didn't have a a bank account that allowed me to just hang out for the rest of my life. 
and then trying to find out like, you know, what sort of skills do you have and where are those applicable? You know, I hadn't gone to, to university. I had no, you know, formal education outside of, of, you know, American high school. So then figuring out what, what are you going to do that's also brings you joy and, and, and happiness and passion. I mean, to have a job to be a professional cyclist is, you know, you wake up every day living your childhood dream and it's easy to be motivated for that and to realize that, you know, most people go to a job that they don't necessarily enjoy or they're not passionate about. They're kind of just checking a box. So to be able to find something that kind of gives you that same sense of purpose. And, you know, if anything, it's, you know, one thing that I, I struggled with is, you know, being a pro cyclist, you know, riding the Tour de France was like a dream of mine. And it's like, what do you do in life when you reach your ultimate dream at age 28? It's like, you're so young. Like, well, what now? Like, I've already achieved everything I wanted to achieve, you know, because that's all you'd focus on. Of course, you know, now I'm about to be a father and I got married and you know, there's other things I want to you know, accomplish. But there is this window of time when you haven't actually considered what's next. You know, you've put so much time into, you know, your sport and your career that you never really think, OK, well, what am I going to do after that? What else, you know, purpose do I have? And it took a while to actually figure out what that was. I suppose it's easy to stop riding and think you might you know, you don't have those skills to move into the workplace. But in the job that you've got at Wahoo, you're using a lot of what you learn in the peloton, uh, being like a talking to riders and having that experience. Do you find that you actually have more skills than you might have originally thought when you did retire? Yeah, it is amazing to like just realize how many things you you learn through kind of the experience of, of travel and, you know, working with, you know, different people from different countries and, you know, just relationship building the computer stuff I'm still horrible at and I'm, and I'm you know, trying to learn and I, I'm kind of reluctant to actually like become more tech savvy. But it is it is amazing that, you know, regardless of what background you come from, you have skills that are still and especially for athletes like, you know, you've become an expert in something. You have skills and you have a, you know, a desire to learn and to improve that I think goes beyond just your, you know, beyond your sport. Yeah, It's also been challenging at times because I will sometimes like look around at my colleagues and be like, oh, wow, like, you know, when I first joined, they were using all these acronyms, you know, within the marketing department. Like, I have no idea what, like, I'm sitting there on a, on a company call, like, Googling stuff to, like, figure out, like, what they're actually talking about. But that's all stuff that can be learned. And, you know, I guess what, you know, one thing that, you know, other people who, you know, are in the general workforce don't have is the experience that, you know, a lot of pro athletes have. So, you know, for athletes that are, you know, leaving their sport and joining, you know, a general job. Um, realize that you are valuable and you do have skills that other people don't necessarily have or experiences that they've never had. So how did you go from being in that position where you felt ready to stop road racing to doing the gravel racing? Like, how did that come about? Kind of just randomly in a sense. You know, I, where I live, there's a lot of gravel roads. So I was riding, I was riding gravel because I still loved riding my bike. And, and in the U.S., Wahoo partners and, you know, supports a lot of these gravel events. So I was going to be at the events anyways, just, you know, working with our athletes or working the, the expo or the booth. So I figured, cool, I might as well, you know, no one's in the expo area when the race is happening. So I might as well join the ride and, and participate. And just because the, the pandemic, I, you know, kind of improved my skills and had time to be at home and, and ride and train and, and stay fit. But then obviously this year, my, you know, performance has kind of exceeded my expectation because I was still so new to it. And I knew that, you know, it's becoming more competitive every year. So to actually be able to be at the front and like, you know, contend for the win was like a bit of a surprise. Yeah, I mean, I'm incredibly fortunate that Wahoo like realizes that, cool, like you still have this ability to, to perform. So like, let's, you know, let's make sure that you still have, you know, the time to, to make sure you can, you know, train and be and be ready as long as you want to do that. And, you know, it's still very much a transition from, you know, being a pro athlete to to the full, you know, full time worker and, and employee. But it's kind of nice that I'm extending that kind of transition period just by 
being able to still, you know, ride and race. So you didn't go into races like Unbound Gravel thinking, I am like an ex-world tour rider, I'm going to win, I'm going to be the best. You were still, you weren't that confident despite your, all the experiences that you'd had in the peloton already? No, not at all. Because I mean, especially Unbound, it's 200 miles. I'd never ridden that long. I mean, in the, in the months leading up to the event, you know, I think the longest ride I did, a, a couple six-hour rides. And there's so many different, you know, whether it's tactics or equipment or flat tires, like so many things can go wrong. And I guess in a sense, maybe being naive was probably a benefit because I had no expectations. Like my only goal was like, I want to finish. I want to be safe. You know, I I don't want to crash again. That's kind of my number one goal of all these races. I want to be able to like call my wife at the finish line and not be in a hospital. Essentially just have a good run at it and, you know, have a good day and feel what, feel good and feel strong. And if I finish first or I finish a hundredth, it doesn't really matter. I just want to enjoy the experience of, of being out there and riding with all these other people. And so far I've been lucky in the sense that, you know, I've tended to finish at the front, but that's kind of just maybe a, a byproduct of approaching these races without the same kind of stress and nerves that I had in the world tour. Yeah, you mentioned there that it was 200 miles long. I guess there must be some real mental challenges during that race. Do you ever kind of have these battles in your head during it? Like, you know, will you make it to the finish? What are some of the challenges? I mean, to be honest, it was like maybe one of the best days I'd ever had on the bike. And like it seemed to go really quickly. And I had almost no low points. Like thinking back now, there was never a point when I'm like, oh, man, I'm too hot or I'm about to bonk or, you know, my feet hurt. I guess in a sense, like I've just really appreciated that I'm still able to ride my bike and like how much fun I'm having I guess in a sense a race like Unbound you know you start off with 4,000 people and slowly it just you know trickles down after 100 miles it was like five riders and it almost feels like a video game it's like cool I made it to the next level you know it's like now there's only like 200 people and now there's 40 and now there's five and it's like cool now there's two and it was like you know you kind of just like mentally you're it's a, a race of almost just like elimination and it was cool to, you know, especially be up there with, with riders that I know really well, you know, Lawrence and Ted King and Pete and Colin. Essentially just be on a big bike ride with my friends. And then, you know, because the race, you know, you start in this small town in Kansas and there's all these people and then you leave and like for 10 hours, you're just in the middle of nowhere and you hardly see anyone. So you feel like you're on a group ride and then you come back into town, you're like, oh shit, we're still racing. And like, I mean, of course you know it, but it's like, there's a disconnect. It's not like the Tour de France where there's people the whole, the whole length of the road. So yeah, I mean, it's, it's uh, if anything, I've learned to like just break down the, the races and make sure that you're always kind of engaging and trying to remember to have fun. It's so different to road racing in that way that it's so much more relaxed and there isn't that sort of tension that you have in a peloton. Does that, do you think that suits you a lot, a lot more? Yeah, and I always struggled to like be in the proper position in, in the peloton and I have a pretty wandering mind. Like I, you know, if I focus on like, you know, when I was racing on the road, like, cool, I need to get to the front. Like I could focus and, and get to the front. But next thing I know, I was like at the back again. And just because gravel, you know, you are drafting, but there's, you can't draft quite as closely. So there's just more room in the bunch to kind of move around. Yeah, I mean, it's, there's definitely a more relaxed feel at the moment, but I don't think it's going to be like that way forever. You know, it's becoming more competitive every year. And I think next year will be more competitive than, than this year and the year after, even, even more so. That was one of the things I was going to say, like on the women's side, we have riders like Tiffany Cromwell coming from the World Tour, competing in some gravel races. How do you kind of feel like about that, about uh, riders of that calibre coming to do gravel races, which are traditionally quite a different community? I mean, I think it's great that people are, you know, discovering it and and it's it also enhances the events when you bring over, you know, someone like Tiffany, you know, it raises the level of, you know, currently the American riders who are participating in these gravel events. All of a sudden you have a, you know, someone who's been to the Olympics coming to this, this gravel race and it, it raises the, you know, the level of the race and the level of competition and the level of attention at these races. 
and I was accepted in gravel just the same way that I hope that, you know, whoever comes next is also, you know, welcomed. I just hope that the, the sport as a whole kind of keeps this, this same, you know, ethos of let's make sure that, you know, there's going to be a winner, but let's make sure that everyone has a good time and it's fun. Do you think like maybe part of it is that it's a lot more of a newer sport than road racing? So it doesn't have those unspoken rules, all those intricacies that people kind of have to learn, but you're never really, yeah, like you're never really taught. Do you kind of think that's one of the reasons why people find it a bit more accessible? Yeah, they're becoming more kind of not unwritten rules, but like a code, which is always dangerous because it's not right or wrong. It's just kind of like, cool, most people follow this kind of way of racing. And one thing, you know, Gravel's been fortunate to have is there haven't been rules, but that's also created more kind of controversy at, at various points, especially this year as be- the competition becomes, you know, more intense and there's kind of more riding on it. People are making, you know, careers out of it and they're making money and it's a job. So people are maybe more inclined to push those boundaries kind of to the limits. But at the same time, you know, I think that it's, if anything, it's, it's opened a lot of internal dialogue within the community of like, hey, how do we want to address this? You know, which is, which is great. You know, and there's not at the moment a governing body of, of gravel racing. So it is kind of up to the, to the riders and the organizers and the participants to think like, you know, how do we want to see this proceed? What's the best way for us to do that? Do you think there's maybe some things that road cycling could learn from the gravel scene to help it become a bit more open to a wider range of people? I mean, yes. At the same time, you know, road racing is the way it is because there's this deep history and tradition. And, you know, that's kind of the the beauty of gravel is like we are making the history now. You know, we have this you know unique ability to kind of navigate the future of what it looks like. And, you know, I don't think it needs to be it doesn't need to become road racing. It doesn't need, like we have this chance to like make something that's completely new and different. Um, and of course it will like splinter and there will be, you know, events that are more like road races. There might be events that are more like a, you know, cyclocross race or mountain bike race. But I think it's cool that, you know, this mass participation experience is something that really everyone is welcome at. You spoke a little bit before about how uh, there was quite a lot of pressure when you were doing road racing. When you won Unbound, did you kind of have to stop yourself from taking it too seriously and going back into that high pressure environment that you said you didn't really enjoy so much? Yeah, I mean, I was... Like I said, super surprised to actually win that race. I mean, it was one of the few races I ever won in, in my life. Afterwards, there was so much, like, attention and, you know, kind of hype around it that for a while I was like, you know, should I go back to racing? And then, you know, I realized, like, you know what, I'm, this is working for me now because I'm having fun. And if anything, it made me realize, like, oh, I probably took a lot of my pro road career too, too seriously and you're too, you know, you're putting too much pressure on yourself. But no, because I did, you know, a handful of races after Unbound during the rest of the year and, and just tried to make sure to keep that same mentality of like, you're doing this because it's fun. And, you know, oftentimes when you do things for you know the right reasons, they work out well. You also race with the Trans Pride um, armband on. Could you explain a little bit about why you did that? What, what kind of fueled that decision? Yeah, so a year ago, my nephew came out as being trans and it was something that my family, you know, was, it was kind of a new area of you know discussion within my family because it was just something that you know I was able to for so long in my life just focus on me and kind of things that were important to to me and my racing and all of a sudden realizing like oh there's a huge world out here of people who are having a very different life experience to me and there's several other other athletes who I had you know spoken with during the you know early part of the year about you know my nephew and was just trying to get their you know opinion who you know other transgender athletes really just reaching out to them because we're friends and like trying to essentially just seek advice and learn and listen. 
so I asked them, you know, hey, would it be all right if I race with this, you know, sweat bandit unbound to kind of like share my support of, you know, you being included in these races. And that's the beauty of it is there's not different categories. There's not a, a men's race and a women's race and a non-binary category. It's like everyone's there together. So no one feels like excluded or included. It's like, cool, we're all here together. So I very much wore it for, you know, really just in support of, you know, my friends and, and my family. But obviously because you, or because I won, um, people noticed it. And, and it's been cool to see kind of this trickle-down effect of, you know, the week after where the U.S. Pro Road Nats, I think there were like 20 athletes who had gone online and bought those bands to wear to represent, you know, kind of the same purpose of like, hey, there's so many things happening in the world, like, and people who are having a very different experience than, you know, we're having as, you know, you know, white male cyclist. And so it's cool to see that, you know, cycling is addressing these these issues and realizing that, you know, hey, we need to like look out and realize that there are other people who, who want to be part of the sport that maybe don't always feel welcome or included. It feels like gravel racing especially is opening doors for a lot of a lot of people from all parts of the world. I think you recently uh, did the migration gravel race, which you race against Kenyan riders. It's probably the only opportunity that they get to race against, you know, riders of your level. How was that? And did you feel like it was making a positive change? Yeah, going to Kenya was probably one of the coolest and, and maybe most powerful things I'd, I'd really done on a bike, which is crazy. You know, you've, of course, you know, you race in the world's biggest races and people notice you and you, maybe you inspire people, but to be able to go to to Kenya and race with these athletes and see the drive and the hunger that they have. Like it reminded me so much of, of myself as a child. And we did this film with, with Wahoo, the first film, which is Swahili for opportunity. And I've watched it probably 15 times. And every time at the end, I like I tear up because I see so much of myself in these athletes. And then I realize like how many opportunities I had that they still aren't getting and they, they want it just as bad, but they just, you know, they were supposed to be here at, at Rulaire live and, you know, they got denied visas again. And they were supposed to come over to the U.S. and race at SBT and BWR, and they got denied visas. And it just makes you realize that, you know, similar to the, you know, you know transgender thing that we were talking about, that, you know, people are having a very different experience to what I'm having. And, like, how can I help and kind of elevate and prop up these people who don't have that same opportunity? And it's been awesome to see because they have been given a lot more chances recently you know they got to come over to Europe and they raced in you know um Suli did the was the Badlands down in Spain and they did the Grindero Switzerland and so I'm still in communication with these athletes and like you know they're still frustrated that there's all these barriers that you know really every direction they turn there's something that kind of stops them but I'm like hey this is like it's already made huge progress in the last six months you know things are changing and like you know one thing I've spoken to to Suli about is like you're you're now like the icon for these athletes you know like you're i know you're going through this hard thing but like people are gonna look back in 10 years time and be like oh wow like he was the pioneer you know similar to you know the first american riders that came over to race in the tour de france like they paved the way and that's what these athletes are doing at the moment is they're paving the way for generations to come I suppose in the road cycling scene, you can almost get stuck in this little bubble, but it seems like from doing gravel, you've sort of seen that the cycling world is a lot bigger than just road racing. And, you know, would you kind of agree with that? Yeah. And that's, you know, that's the really the beauty about these gravel events is that, you know, there's a lot more happening than just the race. Like I said, people are focusing on, okay, who won the race? Like they want to cover who won, but there's so many other stories that are happening. You know, at, at SBT this year, there was a, you know, a large involvement with the Ride for Racial Justice, a group in the U.S. that brought, I think there were 25 athletes from, like, you know, BIPOC backgrounds to the race. And it was the first time they'd ever done a gravel event or any sort, sort of bike race. 
so I got to hang out with those athletes. We did like a, you know, a shakeout ride the day before. And it was cool to see like people are now realizing like, oh, this sport is also for us. It's, this isn't just for like a middle class white guy who, you know, has been doing it since he's a kid. Like new people are entering the sport. And I think that it's awesome to see that you really have to see people of a similar, you know, whether it's gender or, you know, skin color, people like, oh, that's not for me because I don't see myself represented there but more so people are seeing themselves represented and it's hopefully just going to keep expanding that and bringing more people from different backgrounds into the sport. That's awesome. I mean, it's, it's so cool to hear all these different stories that are coming out of these events of people who, you know, have been doing something completely different to, to me for the last 20 years, but now we're at the same race doing the same thing together. And it's maybe the, the beauty of the bicycle is it, you know, allows people to come together and share something in common. This is maybe a difficult question, but how do you think we can transfer this sort of diversity that we're seeing in gravel racing into the world tour, into the professional races that are watched, races like the Tour de France that are watched by so many people? That's a hard question to answer because I, I mean, I really don't, I don't know. Um, you know, and, and maybe it is something that starts in, in, you know, gravel racing and essentially it's, you know, the people who are racing in the Tour de France, whether it's, you know, the Tour de France, the men's race or the new Tour de France femme, those are always going to be the world's best athletes. What's happening now in gravel is it's opening up the demographic of people who are participating in cycling. And some of those people who are, you know, new to the sport, they're, you know, they're happy to just participate. But you're going to, in generations to come, you're going to have, you know, kids growing up like, oh yeah, my parents, you know, race gravel and they're going to get into cycling. And we may start seeing people of, of, you know, different backgrounds coming in and being like, oh, I'm all of a sudden I'm racing. And I had these opportunities as a 10 year old because my parents got into cycling 20 years ago. And so maybe it's something we don't see instantly, but maybe in 10 years time. And, you know, the reality of, of pro racing is like the minute you open up the genetic pool of, you know, talent, like there's people, you know, here in London who have never ridden a bike before who probably are capable of winning the Tour de France, but they're just not, they're not on bikes. So the more people you get on bikes, the more people you're going to see, you know, performing at the, at the top level. So maybe it is just a case of the more people we can bring in, you know, the people who choose to be, you know, racers you know we may see those athletes going to you know the tour de france in 10 or 20 years time and just a note on your your kind of gravel career personally what are your goals for the next for the next year are you doing it full time now are you do you plan to i mean i'm keeping a very similar schedule and structure to what i had this year so i'm still working at wahoo full time um i'm going to be a father at the end of december so that's another kind of thing on my on my plate yeah i'll do hopefully like you know a similar similar schedule you know maybe five to eight races throughout the course of the year and I guess my one goal would be to try to go back and defend unbound you know not that I know I don't want pressure on myself but like I guess to I mean I love the process of just getting ready for a race so much you know whether it's the equipment or training and just kind of feeling yourself get more fit so I'd love to just be in a position where I can go back to unbound and be like cool I can once again hopefully make it as far as I possibly can with with the front group. Ian Boswell talking to Ruler's Rachel Jarry. This is Ruler Conversations brought to you by Lacquer. Bicycle insurance powered by the community. Why, hello there. Podcast interruption alert, but I will only take a few short moments to say that if you're enjoying this podcast, you will love the regular magazine. So if you're not a reader already, then you can subscribe at ruler.cc for as little as £6 per month. If you don't speak Northern Irish, that's six times 100 pennies. And for the price of a few coffees, you get regular columns from the one Wonderful Ned Bolting, myself, Orla Shinoui, 
Dewey and some of the very finest independent cycling journalism there is, all wrapped up in a wondrously beautiful publication. Go to ruler.cc. I'll leave you to it. So my name is Oren Peleg and I'm an investor in Lekka. Three things that really caught my eye. The first one is, is they're looking to change the insurance industry, which is a very large industry and I think needs change. The second thing is, is I'm deeply passionate about getting people on two wheel. We need to address our congestion and pollution crisis and I believe that two wheels have a massive role to play in that. And the third thing is, I can see a growing trend around companies building on the strong communities that they have. And I think Lacquer's business model in the way they tap into the community of cyclists is something that's very much on trend at the moment. While the pandemic may not be quite as over as some people thought it was, a recently published book tries to find the silver lining in the clouds of the last two years. Cycling Through a Pandemic tells the stories of 10 cyclists around the world who found some escape from COVID-19 by riding their bikes. Profits from the book, available now on the Ruler website, go to World Bicycle Relief. I spoke to one of the featured cyclists, crit and gravel racer Sammy Sowry, and the author, Jonathan Hurd. The real idea behind it was to sort of mark this time in history with like a really physical object. I was pretty sick of looking at stuff online and looking through a screen and talking to people through Zoom. And, and I felt like this was the perfect time to put something together that was really physical um, and a heavy sort of tome to mark mark this time. It's sort of quite a museum piece in a way I was hoping that people would be able to sort of look back at it and and really sort of have a positive memory about this time so yeah that was that was the real main motivation and also you know giving back through cycling as well then as sort of all of the profits from the book going to World Bicycle Relief so yeah that that was probably the two the two main motives and you did during uh this period your own um longest journey didn't you well very long journey actually did lands end to john the groats and you took the sort of slightly longer way round. um uh, what was that like how was how was that uh because that was um when there were still some restrictions in the uk weren't there yeah so i definitely took the scenic route and it was it was when the sort of restrictions eased enough in the uk to allow for travel sort of domestic travel I'd sort of got to this point in my life where I needed a change and so I pretty much just packed up my flat in Brighton and and, and sort of packed up packed it all into a bike somehow and um, headed down to the tip of Cornwall in the south south of England and set off on this adventure and I'd seen sort of people do it in the past I'd seen the GB Duro stuff happening which sort of was was a big inspiration for me little did I know how hard it was and how how sort of in the thick of it I'd be. Yeah, I, I really sort of wanted to take a, a decent chunk of time out of out of sort of life and figured this was probably the best time to do it, you know, being sort of furloughed from work. And yeah, I spent a month on the bike riding up north or through England into the middle of Wales, um, trudging through moors in sandals and then up to Scotland through the Scottish Isles, which were just the most incredible sort of places I've, I've ever been, full stop. So yeah, it was it was that trip that then inspired the book. I was sort of thinking along the way about other people in their own countries experiencing these things as well. So wanted to capture that really. 
And what was your big learning from that journey? Did you, especially at that time? I think personally, and, and I think Sammy, you probably can agree with this, but there's so much personal growth, you know, in cycling and so much, you know, that you learn about yourself. So for me, it was my first solo trip. And I pretty much just threw myself in the deep end there, really. I didn't really realize how tricky it would be. But yeah, so much personal growth and just learning how to sort of cope by yourself, how to how to sort of be independent and to basically just enjoy spending time on your own and, and, and really sort of reconnecting. Um, so that was, for me, that was probably the biggest personal thing. Well, Sammy Sauri, um, people may know you from your uh, racing in uh, fixed gear crit events and in gravel events. Um, what were you actually doing? What were you planning to be doing when the pandemic hit? Uh, that's a good question. I basically... The three months before the pandemic, actually, it was my best ever training like months. I never follow so good and so well um, I coach. And I was really looking forward for the season for gravel racing and especially for like U.S. Uh, gravel, like Dear to Kansas and uh, Letville and all these uh, races around. So my idea was really sticking to that like, yeah, just competition and racing and all about gravel and mountain bike, but all fell off <laughs> apart. And I realized that maybe that's not, that was not the path I wanted to take. So um, we switched it completely to like not racing even one race in the entire last two years. <laughs> and, and what were the restrictions um, like uh, at the time or sort of early on? Because in Spain, they were pretty strict, weren't they? Yeah, we had like 52 days of lockdown, fully not going out of home, aside from supermarket. And then it became, it was weird because um, they, they suddenly they opened up everything and said suddenly they did like half lockdown and then every community, like Catalonia was one thing. Then you went to Zaragoza, which is, was the place I took, I took my after pandemic first trip, uh, the one in the book, and it was completely different. And then you were to the south of Spain, it was like everything was changed. So every single community had different stuff um in Girona as it's such a small town and we don't have too much people there we kind of got in like fine with it I think um I was seeing videos from other big cities like Barcelona and it was mind-blowing for people who do sports uh, they had no because they have more restricted areas and they only had like one climb or like one little hill you can go. And we were lucky that we had a few more. So, yeah. So let's talk about that um, journey that you did and you write about or is, is written about in the book um, in Zaragoza. Um, or describe um, the sort of country and the, and, and the route that you took. The Zaragoza area, it's, um, I think it's one of the, fourth or fifth biggest cities in, in Spain. And next to it, it's uh, one of the biggest deserts, I think in Europe even. So Bardenas Reales and uh, Monegros. And my friend uh, Ibai, which is from the north of Spain, has been creating like lots of routes. And he's like, hey, come on, like, let's do this. The, the event or like the little ride with a lot of people didn't happen, but we could do it ourselves too together. And it was like my first trip outside home, like, I did quite a few around, but like I was taking a train and that was like super weird. It's like a ma double mask and all these things, you know. Um, so yeah, it's it's it consists of like 
going through the two deserts at the same time in three days. You could do it in more or you could do it in less days or maybe if you want on one day. But yeah, I, I've been going there for a, a work and shootings when I was uh, younger and I never really rode there properly, like the whole thing. So I was super excited and I love Bardenas. It's like one of my favorite places here in Spain. So. Well, the pictures in the book make it look amazing. It's incredibly wild scenery. And as you say, it's, it's actually very close to, or yeah, relatively close to um, big cities. Yeah, it's, uh, I, I mean, one of the things I discover in, in this time of, of life is that you don't really need to go out very far you don't need to go and take a plane of like 10 hours to find such a vast and beautiful and remote place you you have it around the corner it was a three hours train and and, a, and an hour of riding to get out and that was it you know and and it was like wow i actually have all these things in spain and and i thought i didn't or i thought getting a plane to the united states for like i don't go to utah will be you know what it will be but we have a little Utah here, so <laughs> why not? And Jonathan, did you find a sort of similar thing of discovering um, landscapes, discovering areas in, in the UK, which you weren't really aware of? Yeah, for sure. I think it's a reoccurring theme. I think now we're sort of reflecting on the pandemic, isn't it? And uh, just, just yeah, like agreeing with Sammy, I think there's places in the UK that look like and are more beautiful than than places that I've been to in New Zealand and I just I had this sort of slight guilt about all of these long haul flights that I'd taken and the fact that I'd never taken enough time to just go up to Scotland and see all these places and I'm sure um, more well-traveled people in the UK will sort of they know but for me I just didn't know so I think it was just a great experience to to go up there and, and see something new. Do you think that the past 18 months have sort of changed, made a long-term change uh, to the way that you consider cycling and the role it has in your in your life? Yeah, no, it's a great question. I think, um, you know, I've always cycled. I grew up, uh, my dad raced, and I've always sort of grown up cycling. But I think the pandemic changed it for me in that it was a sort of more than anything, it became like a form of transport. It just became a tool for me to just explore and, and have these adventures. And I'd always sort of seen it as like a sort of form of exercise before or like a, tra- a form of training. So, yeah, no, it became like a, a great source of freedom for me, just going out on one one night trips and then and sort of, you know, just exploring the local area and then doing that trip. It just became such a, a tool for sort of independence and freedom, yeah. And how about you, Sammy? Has it made a sort of long-term change to the way that you're thinking? Yeah, I think like right now it's the same. It's like I don't need to get like a seven-hour airplane and whatever. I just try to get, try to do a bit more or less carbon footprint, you know, like take trains. I live in Girona. It's super easy. Uh, you could take trains to Geneva, Switzerland, France, everywhere. Um, and then I just, yeah, it's the same. I, I, I try to use my bike as a work tool as also like, uh, as a scouting for shoots, a scouting for like stuff that I do ahead. Uh, and it so far it's been working really well. Like people will do it by car, you know, I'll do it by bike. It's more real and it's more, it's more truth. Like what you're going to sort of experience and stuff. So, so yeah, so far, I mean, even if I've been working a lot this year, I think like 
the bike always goes with me everywhere. So. Uh, Jonathan, when you were putting the book together, were there um, journeys in there that other people had done? Was there one particular one, apart maybe from Samis, that really stood out and you thought, God, I wish I could do that when all this is over? Yeah, I think um, the story from Hanna in, in Finland really stood out to me. There's, I think there's, there's definitely a similarity between the sort of landscape in the UK and, and the sort of Nordic countries and although they seem to be more, more and bigger and better in every way. That would probably be the, the sort of outstanding journey. I'd love to go and see Norway. I'd love to see Finland and, and cycle around there a bit. And I think just, there seems to be more gravel there. I think that's the thing with the UK, that everything is tarmacked, everything's railroaded. There's less freedom, apart from when you're up in, in Scotland. And yeah, going somewhere, I think that's bigger, like Finland or Norway would, would really sort of open my eyes a bit. Well, fingers crossed we can carry on doing things like that. Uh, Cycling Through a Pandemic is published by Kamut and is available on the Ruler shop online. So, uh, Jonathan Hurd and Sammy Sorry, thanks for joining us. Thank you, Thank you so very much. much. And that's it from Ruler Conversations for 2021. Thank you for listening. Look forward to catching up with you next year, whatever that may bring. Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high-end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365 day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style. Mom deserves the best and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. 